morning, if you have your Bibles, if you would open with me now to the book of Romans, chapter 13. And this morning, we'll be picking up in verse 11 with a message entitled, Wake Up. Maybe for some of you, that's extremely relevant at this moment uh, to wake up. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this exhortation. Lord, there are many in this day who are being lulled to sleep. But Lord, we pray that the spirit of the living God, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, would give life to these mortal bodies here today. Awaken us, Lord. Open our eyes that we might see more of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 90th Psalm, the psalmist penned a heartfelt request to the Lord when he said, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The psalmist had come to the realization that man does not have all the time in the world. That time is a precious and valuable commodity that should not be wasted. That life on earth is temporary and brief. And therefore, when we understand the importance of using our time wisely, because it is limited, it affects the way that we live. As a Christian, there are biblical truths and prophetic promises in Scripture that have a direct impact upon our lives and serve as a divine incentive to make the most of the time that we have been given. And within the passages of Scripture before us, there is a sense of urgency within the apostolic exhortations to the church. You can sense the emphasis in the phrases, knowing the time, it is high time, awake out of sleep, salvation is near, the day is at hand. All of these phrases together give us the strong impression that this is not the time for procrastination, but for action. That this is not the season for lethargy, but for urgency and activity. And the important underlying reason that the Apostle Paul is sounding the alarm, sending out a personal wake-up call, is because Jesus is coming again. The return of Christ is near. There is coming a day when our opportunity for evangelism will cease. There is coming a day when a Christ-rejecting world will experience the judgment of Almighty God. 
And that is why Paul uses and urges the believers here or exhorts them rather in verse 11. He says, and do this. Do what? In the context, Paul is referring to what he's just emphasized in the previous verses. He urges the importance of the foregoing exhortation in view of the imminency and the certainty of the rapture of the church as believers will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's saying, live your life as a Christian in this world while you still have the opportunity to be a Christian in this world. Don't simply talk about it. Do it. Just do it. (laughs) The reason why I should live this way is because I have the knowledge of something that is limited, which is time. Knowing the time, it's high time to awake out of sleep. There are two words in the Greek language for time. One is the word chronos, from which we get our English word chronology. It refers to time on a sundial or days on a calendar. The second word that Paul uses here is kairos, which means a fixed or appointed season, an era, an age of time. When studying through the Bible, you find that God has his own timetable in the ultimate redemptive history and future of humanity. And it is here in light of the time that Paul warns believers not to fall asleep. When he talks about falling asleep or being awake, he's not talking about physically falling asleep. He's talking about something spiritual. He's warning against falling into spiritual apathy or to become inactive spiritually, not to allow themselves to drift or to sink into a comfortable position of spiritual inactivity. And when he uses the word salvation, salvation that is nearer than when we first believed, he's not referring to salvation as it relates to being born again. He's referring to salvation as it relates to Christ coming again. I am saved. I have been born again. I have placed my faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for me when he died in my place and he rose again from the dead. I am saved. I confess him as my Lord. I've turned from my sin. I've repented. I've called upon his name. I am saved. But listen, I am also going to be saved. That is, he is coming again for me, whether in life or in death, he is coming. And so I have this understanding, my salvation, it's nearer than when I first got saved. It's nearer than when you first believed. The church has always lived with the anticipation of the return of the Lord. And it was a great motivator and a catalyst in the advancement of the kingdom of God. And this emphasis placed on godly living in light of the return of Jesus is seen throughout the New Testament. In the book of Titus, chapter two, in verse 11, Paul writes, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live 
soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And why is that? Because we are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the incentive. This is what motivates me to live godly in this world. Jesus is coming. In writing to the Hebrews, the author of that epistle in chapter 10, verse 24, says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love in good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Folks, listen, I believe that the day is approaching. And in light of that, it has a direct link and impact on how I live. James, in chapter five, says much the same thing. He said, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives it. The early and the latter rain, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus said in Revelation 22, and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. You understand the emphasis, the theme, the exhortation to live in light of the soon return of Jesus. It's at hand, it's near, the day is coming. Now there may be some of you here this morning that are unfamiliar with the phrase, the return of Jesus. Maybe you're wondering, is that a reference to the rapture? or the second coming of Christ? Are they the same thing? And that can be confusing. For some, when reading through the scriptures, you may find it difficult to determine whether a passage is referring to the rapture or the second coming. Or when a pastor says, the Lord is coming, we say amen. Which coming are we talking about? Which one are we referring to? The rapture and the second coming are similar but separate events. Both involve Jesus returning. Both are end time events. However, it is crucially important to recognize the differences between the two. In summary, the rapture is the return of Christ into the earth's atmosphere, into the clouds, to remove all believers from the earth before the time of God's wrath is poured out upon the world. The second coming, on the other hand, is the return of Christ to the earth to bring an end to the tribulation and to defeat the Antichrist and his evil world empire and to establish his kingdom upon the earth at the rapture. Believers are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, there it is, together 
with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. At the second coming, believers return with the Lord to the earth. Revelation 19, verse 14 declares, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. The second coming takes place after the great and terrible tribulation recorded in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. But the rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation. And there is a strong biblical case for a pre-tribulation, pre-wrath rapture of the church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God hath not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, listen. Jesus went to the cross, and the wrath of God that I deserved, that you deserved, was poured out on him at the cross. He became our propitiation, our redemption. The wrath of God was poured out on him. He died in my place to save me from wrath that will eventually come. And therefore, if Jesus died to save me from wrath, listen, in the great tribulation, it's called the wrath of the lamb. But the lamb died to keep me from wrath. Would now the lamb pour out his wrath upon me that he died to keep me from? The answer to that is simply no. No, we've been saved, delivered from the wrath to come. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus writes to the faithful church during the last days, and this is what he says, because you have kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from, that is out of, the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. I will keep you out of it. The rapture, folks, is the removal of believers from the earth as an act of deliverance. Whereas the second coming includes the removal of unbelievers as an act of God's judgment. The rapture, it will be secret and instant. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 51, Behold, Paul said, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. It's instant. It's quicker than you can blink your eyes, how fast it will take place. But the second coming, it's visible to everyone. Every eye is going to see him. Those who pierced him will look upon him. They'll ask him where he got the scars Every eye will see him. Matthew 24 makes that evident and clear. The second coming of Christ also will not occur until after certain other end times events take place. One, the revealing of the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, the abomination which brings about desolation, all recorded in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. There are several things that have to happen before the second coming of Christ can occur. On the other hand, the rapture, and this is incredibly important, make note of this, the rapture is imminent. Meaning it can come at any time. There is nothing left on the prophetic calendar of God that needs to be fulfilled for the trumpet to sound, for the church to be caught up. Why is it important for us to keep the rapture 
and the second coming distinct from one another. Because if the rapture and the second coming were the same event, believers would have to go through the tribulation period and experience the wrath of God that Jesus died to save us from. Secondly, if the rapture and the second coming were the same event, then the return of Christ is not imminent. There are many things which must occur before the second coming can take place. Third, in describing the tribulation period in Revelation 6 through 19, nowhere does it mention the church of Jesus Christ. During the tribulation, also called the time of Jacob's trouble, God is going to turn his attention primarily on the nation of Israel to draw them back to her Messiah. The point is this, Jesus is coming again. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and in light of the limited time that we have, and by the way, can I tell you that our time is limited? Sometimes we only think time is limited for those people who have a, a diagnosis that they're told, hey, listen, you've got this much time. We think their time is limited. Every single person in here, our time is limited. Whether you have a diagnosis or you don't. Whether Jesus comes for, for the church in the rapture or he takes us in death. Listen, time is of the essence. It is limited regardless of how healthy you are or unhealthy you are. It's time to live, in other words, awake and alive in light of the limited time and the imminent return of Christ. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let me read to you the literal translation of this passage in Romans 13, verse 12. Listen to what it says. It's here on the board. The night has long been on its way and the day has arrived. Therefore, let us at once and for all put off the works of darkness. Let us at once and for all clothe ourselves with the weapons of light. When the Bible here refers to night, in a literal sense, night is that period of time between sunrise and sunset. That part of the day that lacks light. Metaphorically, described in this verse, darkness is a time of moral and spiritual darkness and night that covers the present world and is radically opposed to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 9 that he must work the works of him who sent him while it is day, for night is coming when no man can work. In other words, time is running out. I love what Spurgeon said concerning this. He said, quote, if I knew that our Lord would come this evening, I should preach just as I mean to preach. And if I knew he would come during this sermon, well, I would go on preaching until he did. The fact that Jesus Christ is to come again, it's not a reason for stargazing, but for working in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that I know Jesus is coming soon, that the night is spent, that the day is at hand. What now? How does that affect the way that I live? And I think this is so critical, and I think there is, in some places, perhaps, a lack of emphasis and teaching and preaching on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Some churches, perhaps, that do not mention it. Listen, we need to be reminding ourselves that Jesus is coming again. We need to be reminding one another, Maranatha, he's coming quickly. 
But how does this affect the way that I live? And there is something that Paul says, there are things that need to be taken off in light of the limited time and the imminent return and other things that are to be put on. First of all, things that are to be set aside. In verse 12, therefore, in light of what I just told you, therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. You remember that Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light. And they won't come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. When you live without a relationship with Christ, you live in darkness. You walk in darkness. And the darkness that is to be cast off represents sin and evil practices that are found in the darkness of this world. We are children of light, the Bible says. And therefore, we don't walk in darkness. We walk in the light as Jesus is the light. And Jesus told us, you're the light of the world. You're like a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And we are to throw off the darkness. Or another way to say it is to repent of it. Turn from it. Don't give in to it. Don't indulge in it. Cast it off. In Ephesians 4, Paul said it this way. That you put off concerning your former conduct. The old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. The old man, the old you, the old person, put it off. Who you used to be is not who you are today in Christ. Your old identity, what you used to identify with is not what you are if you're in Christ today. You're a new creation. And so I put off the former conduct, the old man, the deceitful lusts. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1, exhorted the believers when he said, Therefore, since we also are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We set it aside. We cast it off. We renounce it. We turn from it. Let me ask you, are there any works of darkness that you have begun to put back on instead of take off? I think I can still fit into darkness. Let me see. Oh, man, it's a little tight, but I'm in it. What are you doing? Cast it off. That's not who you are. That's who you were. Why would you want to go back to that? Is there any works of darkness that you're picking back up? Former things that Jesus died to set you free from and you find yourself drifting back to it. He says, cast it off. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He's, he's saying, deal drastically with this. Remove it. It's not worth it. And in its place, as I cast off the works of darkness, I then put on something. I put on, I love this, the armor of light. The fact that it's armor implies something, doesn't it? That it's war. That it's a battle. It's a conflict. It's a fight. There are, friends, weapons that are formed against us. There are satanic 
opposers with an arsenal pointed at the church, and thus we must put on the whole armor of God to be able to withstand. We have to be clothed with the weapons of warfare that are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we're to put on the armor of light. I find the order, by the way, significant. Casting off darkness, putting on light. The order is significant. It starts with turning from darkness and putting on light. And this affects the way that I live. The armor of God. It says in verse 13, in light of darkness being cast aside, renounced, armor of light being put on, now it says, walk properly as in the day. When the Bible refers to walking properly, it refers to the conduct of the Christian, how we live, how we walk, our manner of life. Walk properly. Walk worthy, the Bible says, of this calling that you've received. Put it another way, how a Christian lives as a Christian. It's living a life that is pleasing to God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, make a note of this passage. It says, for you were once darkness. And we were. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Again, that is who you were. That's not who you are anymore. Now, because you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are light in the Lord. So walk like it, is what he's saying. Live like it. Don't just say you are. Live like you really are. If we are walking in the light, the Bible says we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light as he is in the light. Now, if you don't know what walking in the light is, say, well, can you define that for me? What, is, what does that exactly mean, walk in light? What Paul does here in this passage is he helps us understand what walking in light is by telling us what it isn't. He shows us the antithesis of walking in light, the, the total opposite of walking in light, so that you'll know, if I'm doing these things, this isn't light. This is darkness. And here's where he begins in verse 13. Not, first of all, in revelry and drunkenness. If you walk in light, you don't walk in revelry and drunkenness. The word actually refers to a wild nighttime festival in honor of Bacchus, who was the Roman god of wine. And this began with a parade, an intoxicated, drunken parade through the streets and ended in sexual immorality. There are many people today who worship at the altars of Bacchus. Start out, get intoxicated, go home with somebody, never to see them again. I mean, this is the way that the world lives in darkness. That's not the child of God. Living in drunkenness and revelry. A Christian who walks in life, they're not out, or walks in light and in life for that matter, isn't out partying and getting drunk with their co-workers at the Christmas party. You just don't do it. Why? Because you're a child of light. You're not in darkness anymore. 
Well, how much is too much, Pastor John? How do I know if I've had too much? You know what? You're never going to have to wonder whether or not you've committed the sin of drunkenness. If you never drink, it just won't happen. You won't have to worry about it. I need to get a, I need to breathe into this thing to see if I can have a few more. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Set them up again, Charlie. You know, what are you, what are you doing, child of light? What are you thinking? Not in revelry and drunkenness. And let me say this. If you're out there partying, getting drunk with your friends in the name, like, you know, but you're a Christian, can I just tell you something? Listen, you're armorless. You are armorless. You are without protection. You're a target. You're already hit and you just don't know it. You're unconscious. Too many Christians today are letting down their guard in these areas and they're opening the door for the devil to take them down a road that they do not know how to exit. And the reason why they do that, I think it takes us back to the context. One, they don't realize that time is short. Secondly, they are not looking or anticipating the soon imminent return of Christ. What do you want to be doing when Christ comes back? Lying with your head in your toilet? Lord, I'm so glad you're coming. No, that's not where you want him to find you. Today would be great, Lord. If you could come now because I'm in church, this is a great spot. They're, they're not living in light of that. They open the door. You know, I remember growing up and seeing those, I don't know if they were old films, black and white, where, where they'd have the salesman with the vacuum cleaner. The vacuum cleaner salesman. And he would knock at the door, and you know how it is, even today, when people come to your door, it always seems inconvenient. And you just, you know, sometimes just release the dogs, you know, just let them, you know, bark, and the person might run down the street because they know you won't answer. But they just want to talk to you, and, you, you know, it's, I always feel bad for them, so I usually converse and hopefully try to share the Lord with them if possible, you know, let them give their spiel and their pitch, and then I give mine. But you remember in some of those scenes, a vacuum cleaner salesman comes to the door and the woman opens the door, sees and she shuts the door on him. And what does he do? Sticks his foot in the door and it shuts on his foot. And why is that? He's, he's hoping that if I got my foot in the door, she's going to let me come in, dump this dirt on her carpet and then vacuum it up and say, you want one or two? And she'll, she'll buy it. She, all he wanted was his foot in the door so that he could mess up the house. The devil just wants his foot in the door. Just his foot in the door. He wants to get a foothold so that he can develop a stronghold. But what does he want to do? He wants to wreck everything valuable. He wants to rob you. He wants to wreck your marriage. He wants to wreck your kids. He just wants, a, he just wants an opportunity. I think it was Martin Luther that said, when the devil knocks at my door, I always tell the Lord Jesus, it's for you. I let Jesus answer the door. Don't open it up. But it's Christmas. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So live like a child of light is what Paul is saying. Another thing that is not walking in light. Here it is. Lewdness and lust. The word lewdness. 
It refers to sexual relations outside of marriage. The second word, licentiousness or unrestrained lust. These are deeds of the flesh as characterized in Galatians chapter 5, characteristics of the unbelievers in Ephesians chapter 4. God has given the marriage relationship as the proper place for sexual relations. To engage in any sexual activity outside of marriage is to participate in the deeds of darkness, the Bible says. Let me spell it out a little clearer. If today you're living in sexual immorality as a way of life, you're involved sexually with someone who's not your spouse, you're not married, you're in sin. You're walking in darkness. You need to cast off the works of darkness. You need to repent of that, to turn from that, to get right with God. Because here's what's happening. You're hindering your relationship with the Lord and you're hindering that other person's relationship with the Lord. You are quenching the work of the Spirit. And if you have a relationship that's built on sin, God doesn't bless it. But he can bless it if you do it his way. If you're engaged in the practice of pornography, Find yourself bound in sin. Then you need to repent and cast off the works of darkness as you are being destroyed from the inside out. And Jesus can deliver you. He's a savior. He can deliver you from any bondage. He's able if we turn to him. Allow his spirit to deliver us. He will. He can. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, whoo, dodge a bullet. Definitely not into revelry and drunkenness. I only do eggnog and apple cider. <laughs> I don't, I'm good. I am so good. I definitely am not into lewdness and licentiousness. I am, I'm good. Well, the next verse, same verse. How about strife and envy? Oh, what does that mean, Pastor John? Uh, well, it means persistent contention, bickering, petty disagreement. It's a picture of a bitter, sometimes could be violent conflict of dissension and words and actions, a struggle for superiority characterized by self-indulgence. It's not walking in light. Any, any of that going on? Don't raise your hand. I don't, don't. Any strife with your teenagers? Any strife with your wife? Strife with your husband? What about envy? Envy. It's another word for jealousy. It's very easy to succumb to the sin of covetousness, envious, jealousy, we have ways of observing what's going on in people's lives that could make us envious of them. You can see a person's highlight reel. This is me scrolling through it. Oh, man. Wow, they went there? They ate that? She got that for him? I mean, suddenly you're just, you're, you're, I'm, I'm envious And it's sin. It's the flesh. Now, by the way, no one ever posts their bad days. This is me losing my job. <laughs> I 
This is me with the flu. Nobody does that. We want people to see what's good about what's going on. By the way, if you know of an account like that, and maybe you follow it, you feel better about yourself. The point is you, you realize this is kind of way that we become, become envious of what people have and what we don't have, or we wish they didn't have it, and we wish it was ours. It's the flesh. Cast it off. Put on the armor of light. Finally, verse 14. In light of the limited time that we have, and the imminent return of Jesus. What am I to do? Verse 14, I love this passage. But, here's the contrast, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We talked about casting off the works of darkness, putting on the armor of light, and now putting on Jesus. You know, the Bible says that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, putting on Christ, putting on the love of Christ, the peace, the joy of Christ, putting that on, having the Lord live his life through me, submitting, surrendering to the work of the Spirit, enabling the Lord to live his life through me. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, the Bible says. I've been crucified. And in addition to putting on Jesus, he says, and also, by the way, don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The word provision is an interesting word. It literally means forethought or planning. In other words, make no forethought or planning for the flesh is a warning that sin often begins with a plan. You plan it out. You schedule it. You put it on the calendar. You premeditate how this is going to go down. You anticipate the way you're going to get from point A to point B. You've planned it. Don't plan it. Don't make provision for it. There's something really simple but true. If you don't make provision for it, it's not provided for. If you don't make the reservation, you're not getting in. There's no reservation. I'm not planning for it. I'm, I'm not putting it away for that one moment when you never know when I might have to. I'm not making provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. If it's a stumbling block, I'm running from it. If it's a hindrance to my walk with the Lord, I'm turning from it. If this could take me down a path, I'm shutting it down. I'm putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not gonna make provision for the flesh because I know something about my flesh, it will seek to be fulfilled. And if I don't provide for it, then I can't. I don't want to. If you're one of those people who's justifying the provision for the flesh. You know something? We can find all kinds of reasons to justify sin. But the Bible doesn't give us any. But we find reasons. Oh, I've been saving this stuff for a while. New Year's coming. We are going to smoke this with our friends. And by the way, it's legal now. It's legal in the state of California. It's for medicinal purposes. Let me just, really, is it, is it, is it? find reasons to justify. I was doing a men's conference somewhere. I will not say where. And I mentioned what I just mentioned right now. And this guy came up after the fact, convicted, repenting. He said, on my way here, I picked up some marijuana to smoke after the conference. And he justified it by saying, it's legal in this state. And he turned from it. If that's you, 
Cast off works of darkness right now. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Flush that down the toilet. Dump it out. Throw it away. But this is 19. Who cares? Who cares? Get rid of it. Don't make provision for it. Don't go down that road. You're a child of light. Jesus is coming. Are you ready to meet him? You're going to stand before the living God, the judgment seat of Christ. You're going to look into the face of the one that died for you. I'm going to look into the face of Jesus. He's going to see me. He's going to look right through me. That day is coming. It's imminent. That could be in death or that could be in the rapture of the church. Either way, time is brief. And so when I understand that, when it's at the forefront of my mind, it affects the way that I live my life. Folks, that's what it means to live like a Christian. And why, why am I saying that? Because that's what the Bible showed us. We read it repeatedly. This is what it means. Wake up. Lord, wake me up. <laughs> Let me not fall asleep. Help me to realize you're coming. Help me to realize that time is short. Some of you know, this week we had a friend who served here at our church. One week, beginning of the week, he's having headaches. The end of the week, he's home with Jesus. I mean, you didn't, that fast. Who knows? I'm not afraid of that. I'm just aware of it. And so I just want to live just full throttle. <laughs> Put the pedal down. <laughs> I mean, this is this is it. This is the shot. This is the moment. This is the time. Is there anything that God has told you to do that you've been holding back, holding off, and he's been saying and stirring you up and exhorting you, do this knowing the time? What has he said? Respond to that today. For some of you, it may be salvation. You're not saved. You're not born again. You never accepted Christ. You come to a church, but you've never humbled yourself and received Christ and repented and casted off works of darkness. Do this knowing now you're accountable for what you know. And the wonderful thing is, folks, when we decide to do this, the Lord gives us the power to do what he's asked us to do. With his calling comes his enabling. With his commandments comes the ability to carry it out through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I yield to the Lord today and say, God, do it in me. Do it in me, Lord. Let me live for you. Continue to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ. And he will. Put on the Lord Jesus. Wake up. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are aware this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for the word that's active. I pray that hearts would be stirred today. Lord, that we would be challenged, stirred up to love and to good works, knowing our time is limited and your return is imminent. Father, I pray for those today who may be here and they've never submitted to Christ as their Savior, never responded to the love of God. Lord, please, please bring conviction of the Holy Spirit today. 
If you're here today, eyes are closed, heads are bowed here in this moment, I just want to take a minute and say, listen, if you're not saved, if you're not born again, if you've never received Christ, please, would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you today. If you're not a Christian, if you're not ready to meet Jesus, anybody at all, just raise your hand up high. I want to pray for you. If, if you're not a Christian, if you're not born again, friend, you want to have the certainty of where you're going to be for eternity, and you can. Jesus loves you. He died for you. And he's coming again. Are you ready? Father, we thank you for your open arms, your invitation. Moving our hearts by your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with us this morning? Let me just say to you how thankful we are for you, how much we love you, and, and we want to be available for you to pray for you. Perhaps this morning you need prayer. There are pastors, leaders up front to pray for any needs that you might have, whatever they are. If you're in the fellowship hall or even if you're out in the courtyard, you can make your way up to the front here as we dismiss and we'd love to pray for you and whatever the needs might be. If not, may the Lord bless you. Hey, let's, let's walk in light. Let's walk in light as he is in the light. Let's cast off the works of darkness. Let's not waste our time. Jesus is coming. And let's remind each other that he's coming. Remind me, and I'll remind you, Maranatha. Prayerfully, you can join us this week as we make our way into the neighborhood, singing songs about the Lord, doctrinally deep choruses on people's front lawn in mass. It's powerful. And then afterwards, we make our way back here. Really just for, I always see it as, uh, as the church is coming together. And it's like we're having a huge, sanctified, holy birthday party for Jesus. I mean, we're just celebrating the birthday of the king. And we get to come back and fellowship and just, we're just it's a, it's a, I'm inviting you to the birthday party of the king. So you can come and join us. It's a sweet time of fellowship. And I will say it is going to snow. It is. Not literally. Well, I, you know, if you were, ladies, did it snow? Okay, then you know what we're talking about. So I can say, without being a false prophet, it's going to snow that night. And the kids will just have a blast. And so will you as we gather together. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. In Jesus' name, amen.